Tuesday, September 12th. Welcome to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Later in the show today, Cherry, the immigration crisis has come to the Mid-Atlantic. We'll ask NPR's Joel Rose why we've seen a shift in migration patterns and what the potential political consequences are. Plus, after that, we discuss why more Americans rely on subtitles to keep up with their favorite shows. The reasons actually might surprise you. You can join us for both of those topics if you have takes on either one. Our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. And I'm one of those subtitle people. You are indeed. I found that out today. Yes. Also... The 34-year-old prison escapee, Danmelo Calvacante, is now known to be armed and was last seen in northern Chester County. Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Vinny Vela is here to fill us in on the latest updates on that case in just a moment. But first, we'll have some news around the region and we'll dig in. And you up first. Start in Delaware, your home state, Cherry, which uh, the governor, John Carney, just signed a bill into law that would significantly strengthen privacy protections when it comes to personal data. Um, I'll give you the quick and dirty, which is that uh, this allows consumers to correct inaccuracies in personal data, delete personal data, get a copy of their personal data, uh, get a list of the types of third parties accessing data. It also allows consumers, and this is, I think, maybe yeah. the big one, opt out of ad targeting and sell, sale of personal data. I know this was something that mattered a lot to you, Cherry, so I'll give you the floor. Oh, yeah, because my data, I found my data on a number of websites, my yeah. personal uh, address for the past 15, 20 years from college days. And you got it scrubbed. So and I got it scrubbed, yeah. but I had to go to individual websites to do that. So this law would specifically target companies that control the data of 35,000 or more consumers or fewer if that company makes at least 20% of their revenue from the sale of data. Of course, these companies have to have some connection uh, to Delaware in order to fall within the jurisdiction. And of course, Delaware would join about a dozen other states, seven that passed laws this year, all taking on this issue of data privacy. It's a wave. It's a wave, yeah. And and because it's so prolific, so many people are finding their data online. Um, The law won't go into effect until until January 1st of 2025, but the DOJ from Delaware will begin July 1st of 2024, no later than then, to start informing consumers about their rights in advance so that they can opt out or decide to do whatever they want. Um, Now, it does not provide any kind of private right of action, and of course, this would all be exclusively enforced by the Delaware Department of Justice. But this is a major national issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be a patchwork of laws. So you're gonna, it's going to all depend on what yeah. state you are in. But I think at some points, Congress is going to have to address this. Speaking of patchwork, some uh, banking and financial institutions are exempt from this particular Delaware law because of a federal statute. Uh, we won't get into all the details right now, but you mentioned patchwork and it just made me think of that. Yeah, um, and speaking about patchwork. Yes. <laughs> well, that was I didn't even mean to do that. Uh, you Go look, ahead. You, look, you gave me a little layup. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take it. We're talking about construction destruction, and it happens all over Pennsylvania and Philly. Row homes demolition on one house sometimes can lead to a lot of problems. Avi, if you happen to live next door. And in an era of very popular flipping, new builds can gain a reputation for shoddy construction. And saw some lawmakers in Philadelphia, they're trying to address the issue. There is a bill with Democratic sponsors um, from North Philly leading the way. Um, But of course, 
there right now, not expecting any GOP pushback. There's a measure that went into effect in January that requires builders to notify adjoining neighbors about construction projects before works begins. And the lawmakers want to make that uh, statewide. And I will tell you, if you live next door to someone who's doing renovations or development, they could bust through your wall. Mm -hmm. They could cause flooding. (laughs) They could cause roof damage. All sorts of things. It gets really real. Yeah. This is actually a package. There's another proposal called Lemon Law which is kind of what it sounds like, right? You buy a faulty car, a lemon, and you would have some sort of protection. In this case, the, the car is a house. So mm-hmm. if you buy a new build, um, there's like kind of an automatic warranty idea built into it uh, if there are defects that pop up within two years of a home being bought. And uh, Mayor Rindy, who wrote about this for Billy Penn, yeah. th- these new laws, had written a series for Billy Penn I don't, maybe a year or so ago. I don't have the exact date about a, a, a builder, a prominent builder here in Philadelphia that had had a lot of complaints about leakage, flooding, mm-hmm. not being properly sealed against rain, um, bad plumbing, all that kind of stuff. And so this could cover people in those types of situations. So it's it's a broader attempt to try to uh, streamline, straighten up yeah. the construction and reconstruction industry. And like you said, if you live in Philadelphia, we all, you live in yeah. Philly, we all live attached to someone. Mm-hmm. I've got neighbors mm-hmm. on both sides of me. Whatever they do affects me, whether they're making noise or they're building a new kitchen. So this is something that people live with in Philly every day. And for those house flippers and renovators, yeah. amateur folks, pay attention. You're going to have to step <laughs> your game up here. That's the Jerry Gregg warning. Wow. Um, uh, Finally, just wanted to mention some new uh, cannabis rules coming to New Jersey. As you know, New Jersey has uh, legalized uh, recreational adult cannabis. That's not new. But uh, they have recently, uh, because of a vote on Friday by the Cannabis Regulatory Commission, give the green light for Mm. pot brownies and cannabis-infused drinks and other edibles. There are already some types of edibles that were allowed in New Jersey, but a very narrow class of them. And this would... greatly broaden the edible, um, allowable edibles, I guess I should say, in New Jersey. And I found this interesting, Cherry, because one of the things that that cannabis legalization has done Mm -hmm. is really boosted the popularity of edibles because it was kind of seen as risky to buy those in the on the black market because you didn't really know what you were getting, how much, you know, actual THC is in there. Mm -hmm. And um, in states where they have made edibles sort of regulated and legal, there's been a huge, huge increase in the amount being purchased. And so New Jersey could be joining that wave. Yeah, but the, I, I will say that the caution is. Yes, there is a caution here. Because, you know, you don't know. You could get a brownie. You don't realize that it's an edible. Right. Or your, and, or your child. Your, your child, that's right, the Can yeah. eat it and, and not know until like however long later when they're stoned. And so yep. there are concerns about it is that. Very, it's much slower acting, too. Yes. G- generally, I'm generally not, not an expert, but yeah, yeah, I'm not an expert uh, either, Avi. But uh, <laughs> but there were about there, we a, go. <laughs> there were about 140 incidents so far this year of kids eating them by mistake. So we'll be keeping our eye on that. And can I also just say real quickly, they do require as part of this rule uh, to put an expiration date on the edibles. Yeah, in New we've Jersey. we just had a show that. about how that that's meaningless. BS. So, uh, but something else we've been keeping our eye on. We the all nation have, yes, has yes. been keeping its eye on. Um, is the manhunt for the prisoner escapee Danello Cavalcante in northern Chester County. He escaped Chester County Prison on August 31st and has since been seen several times, including in Longwood Gardens 
and in East Nantmill Township where he stole a gun from a homeowner's garage. And we're going to talk about that story that has the entire nation watching our region. Vinny Vela is the lead reporter on the Cavalcante story in, at should I say, Philadelphia Inquirer. Vinny, welcome to Studio Two. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. So let's start with this latest update, Vinny. Um, Cavalcante apparently has a weapon now. How did that happen and when did we learn about this? Yeah, so that news came out late last night uh, as the state police officers and uh, the federal authorities that were looking for Cavalcante received reports from a homeowner that someone had uh, walked into his garage, the garage door was open, while the homeowner was inside, uh, approached him. There was a gun leaning in the corner of the garage. Uh, This person later turned out to be Cavalcante, grabbed the gun and fled. The homeowner, Mm. who had a pistol uh, on his hip, tried to shoot at Cavalcante, Mm. missed, and uh, Cavalcante escaped into the woods with uh, what turned out to be a 22 caliber Ruger rifle that has a scope and a flashlight attached. Do we know if he has ammunition, bullets in the gun? Uh, I believe the gun was loaded. Was loaded, uh, okay. You know, I think that type of gun has about a 10-round clip, is my understanding. I don't know. It doesn't seem like Cavalcante fired any shots back at the homeowner. At least that's not what state police are saying. But it's unclear if that clip was full when he stole it. And so um, let's rewind back. I mean, this man has been able to elude authorities for 13 days now. How has he, first of all, how did, could you give us a, just a rundown, a, a quick reminder of how he escaped and then how he has been so successful in being able to evade authority so long? Sure. So Cavalcante was uh, sentenced to life in prison uh, after being convicted of first degree murder in Chester County for killing his ex-girlfriend in 2021. And as he was awaiting transfer to state prison, where he would serve out his life sentence, he was uh, being incarcerated in the county jail, which is lower security in general. It's usually for pretrial inmates. Um, There is a narrow hallway attached to one of the prison's exercise yards, and Cavalcante walked up to this hallway. Now, he's a short guy. He's about 5'2", from what we understand. He was able to put his arms on one side of the hallway, his feet on the other side, and sort of climb the wall horizontally, kind of like a, a crab walk, up to the roof of the prison. Uh, from which he then ran across the roof and then jumped down to a less secure part of the prison property. Mm -hmm. And then from there, he was able to escape. And how has he been able to evade authorities all this time? What are police telling you? Well, you know, I think the commanding officer of the search, Lieutenant Colonel George Bivens, has been, uh, you know, pretty clear that this is a difficult search. Mm -hmm. You know, his initial hiding spot was around Longwood Gardens, which is very lush and dense. And there's a network of tunnels that run cables and other things throughout the property. There's ravines. Uh, when you're in the middle of that area, it's it's almost pitch black because the trees are so close together. We talked to several residents who lived in that area their whole lives and said that, you know, in certain parts of that forest, you can't even see the sun. It's so thick. Mm-hmm. So I think the implication is that he was just able to use those obstacles to his advantage and uh, avoid the people looking for him. Lots of hiding places but, there, yeah. But then at some point recently, he, he breaches this perimeter. Uh, and, and how did he do that? And how does that change the nature of the search moving forward? It's exactly right. So uh, late Saturday, he was able to steal a van mm-hmm. at a dairy farm near Longwood that had the keys in the ignition, which police have warned people to be you know, vigilant. You're seeing for. a pattern here. Garage door open, keys in the van. Yeah, go right. all, cri- all crimes of opportunity. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, he stole the van and drove it um, 
about 40 minutes north to East Nantmeal Township. Um, from there, he abandoned the van and went back into a wooded area. Uh, you know, yesterday, initially, the state police said that they had moved away from what they called a containment model to basically searching areas they believed he had been reported seen in. And then, obviously, they switched back to a containment model last night when they realized that they had kind of penned him in to the area near where he burglarized that homeowner. And so who all is involved in this search? What law enforcement agencies? Because I also understand that um, Cavalcante is an undocumented immigrant. Uh, Are federal authorities also involved? Yeah, so federal authorities have been involved almost from the beginning. You have uh, the U.S. Marshals uh, from the Philadelphia office have been uh, there almost from the get-go, as well as uh, FBI agents and uh, representatives from U.S. Border Patrol. They've all sort of assisted state police. more recently, we've had uh, some additional local units, I believe. Uh, so the county SWAT unit, uh, the Montgomery County SWAT unit, I think, is now involved as well. So they're trying to just boost as many people in the search as possible. Do we know or do we have any indication if he's being aided and abetted by anyone? That's been a uh, prevailing question throughout all this. You know, we've, myself and my colleagues in the media, you know, we've tried to ask that question of Lieutenant Colonel Bivens, and he, understandably so, is playing a lot of these details close to the vest. He doesn't want to tip anybody off, I assume. But you know, he has said from the beginning that known associates of Cavalcante have been contacted by police. They've been strongly urged not to assist him. Yeah, there's a couple um, of em- uh, former em- em- uh, co-workers of his, right? He yeah, attempted to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Saturday, after he stole the van yeah. and fled the Longwood area, he went to the homes of two men that he worked with years ago. And remember, this guy's been in jail since 2021. Right. Mm. So he basically, the one homeowner had a Ring doorbell camera. And through the app on the guy's smartphone, he actually had a conversation in Portuguese with Cavalcante. And Cavalcante kept saying, I need to meet with you. Hmm. Let's meet. I want to talk to you. And the guy obviously said, absolutely not. Called the police. And that's how they were able to get the – there's a photo circulating of him that state police have put out wearing a hoodie and looking clean shaven. Mm -hmm. That was from that interaction. The second coworker was not home. So he knocked at the door and then left. And then later that coworker reviewed his security footage and saw that he had tried to – so we know for sure that he's attempted to to gain sort of some sort of cooperation with people that he kn- that he knows, but we don't know for sure if he's ever succeeded. Correct. I mean, it, it's hard to say. It's hard to you know sort of reading the tea leaves here. We know that he's changed his appearance. Yeah. We know that he uh, has been resourceful in scrounging items and and you know clothes and supplies and whatnot. Um, but again, the state police are not confirming anything. I think something that is telling is his sister. Yeah, uh, is in yeah. the process of being deported. Now, Colonel Bivens has said this is because she overstayed a visa and mm-hmm. she you mm-hmm. know, violated the immigration laws, um, but would not confirm that she had actually helped him in any way. And as we wrap up, last question here, um, just want to ask you, what should people be doing? Because he's been able to evade authorities thanks to breaking into places, stealing cars. What are police telling folks who live in their region? Again, Colonel Bivens has been uh, extremely uh, clear with this. He said that uh, residents of Chester County in the areas where they're actively searching need to lock their doors, need to secure their vehicles, and just remain vigilant. That's been the uh, consensus. That is Vinny Vela, the lead inquirer reporter on the case of prison escapee Danilo Cavalcante. Vinny, thank you so much for sharing the latest with us and our listeners on Studio 2. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, the latest on the immigration crisis with NPR's 
Joel Rose, standing by. Stick with us, lots to come. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. And welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Immigration is obviously a very polarizing topic, and the consistently partisan debate tends to stall any effort at national reform. Last month, a record number of families crossed the southern border to seek asylum. And you may have seen New York City Mayor Eric Adams's comments that the tens of thousands of migrants coming to New York City were draining resources and would, quote, destroy the city. He called on President Biden to do more. And recently, the White House just floated the idea that Atlantic City Airport could be used to temporarily house migrants. And the blowback was swift. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy shot the idea down quickly, despite saying as a candidate that he'd make New Jersey a sanctuary state. And all of this, Cherry, does seem to signal a shift. Fights about immigration are bubbling up in Democrat-controlled states, including here in our region, and it could have implications for the 2024 election. NPR's Joel Rose, who covers immigration for the National Desk and, by the way, is a WHYY alum, is joining us now to walk us through what's happening at the southern border and in our region Joel, welcome to Studio Two. Hey, thanks for having me. And we want to hear your thoughts on all of this. 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. And Joel, uh, the issue of the what's happening at the U.S. southern border uh, has made its way to northeast cities and states over the past several months or so. It used to seem so far away. Now it's right in front of us. I want you to sort of ground our conversation and talking about how it's sort of made the shift from this faraway issue to now we see uh, Democrats sort of fighting each other on this topic in North in the Northeast cities. Uh, okay. Well, let me let's I guess we should start with um, the numbers of migrants crossing the southern border. It, it has been um, historic in the first couple of years of the Biden administration, the number of migrants crossing without authorization and apprehended by the Border Patrol was the highest ever for uh, a couple of years there. And Republican governors, particularly Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, uh, really were trying to, uh, you know, I, I suppose weaponize the issue is one way to say it. I've been, I've been trying to make the case that the Biden administration was not doing enough to stop this, um, you know, historic migration. Um, Governor Abbott started helping these migrants on their way to where they were going in the Northeast. Initially, he did not uh, direct his buses to New York City. I think he, in the first, you know, at, at first he was sending those buses to Washington, D.C. to try to make his point. Um, and it was the migrants themselves who kind of wanted to go on to New York. These are a lot of migrants from Central America, from even South America, um, Venezuela, Ecuador, um, places, you, you know, like that, who um, were crossing in big numbers. And they... Uh, you know, Governor Abbott bust many of them to New York. Many of them were, were seeking to join friends and family around the country anyway, and the, they took advantage of these buses. Um, I guess the bottom line is that many of them wound up in New York City. More than 100,000 mm -hmm. have wound up in New York City, and they are straining the, the city's ability to um, to house and care for them. I mean, you, you mentioned Mayor Eric Adams 
said, you know, very dramatically last week that the this influx could destroy New York City. I, you know, I think there's some skepticism there if you talk to immigrant advocates that, that he is maybe um, getting out a little over his skis there. But the point is there are 60,000 migrants sleeping in New York City's shelter system, you know, pretty much every night. And the city is on the hook for, for quite a lot of, um, you know, quite a lot of the cost of that. So it has become an issue in New York, in Chicago, um, in, in L.A. The governor has sent a couple of buses to Los Angeles, I think a dozen now. So, yeah, the, the, it's sort of by design. I think uh, that the, that we are now seeing this as an issue around the country in in cities and states that are controlled by Democrats, not not just by Republicans. Was the impetus for this shift merely the initial symbolic buses from Governor Abbott, and we we saw some uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida doing something similar? Is that sort of the signal that everyone picked up on, or were there are there other reasons why people might be now going to places like New York City, Chicago, or, or Los Angeles? It's complicated. Uh, to, thing to answer because migrants rarely stay at the border. I mean, they historically they've always kind of they've crossed and and they may once they're released from border patrol custody they may spend a few nights in a shelter at the border or maybe in San Antonio or but really they're trying to take a bus uh, or a plane somewhere in the country usually to join a relative or a friend somebody who's going to set them up with a couch to sleep on or a job or you know to reunite the family some reason that they're trying to get to a destination they rarely have stayed in at the border ever. Um, What is different, I think, sort of in this recent wave of migration, especially with Venezuelans, is that they don't have a lot of contacts in the Mm. U.S. Mm. And so they have become, they've heard of New York. They knew they wanted to go to New York. And and, uh, I, you know, the reasons probably vary, but for some reason that, that, you know, 100,000 migrants have gravitated to New York City all, you know, in a fairly short span of time. And that has... um, really strained the resources there in a way that I think previous waves of migrants didn't, just because they had a lot of resources to draw on when they got there. I want to sort of talk about who is coming to the border and how has that shifted um, over the past several months um, since, you know, um, um, how how, since Title 42 sort of ended? How how have things shifted there? Yeah, Title 42 were the pandemic era restrictions that that were first put in place by the Trump administration and then continued by the Biden administration that made it really easy for Border Patrol and immigration authorities to to just uh, quickly expel migrants back um, into Mexico generally um, without a formal deportation process. And and sort of it was it was basically it was originally a public health authority that became a border management tool that immigration authorities relied on quite heavily. When it went away in May, um, the Biden administration really shifted its policies and tried a lot of, um, you know, a lot of new approaches to, to because they were worried that there would be an influx when Title 42 lifted. So they introduced a bunch of new restrictions, also some new legal pathways to try to sort of entice migrants to apply from their home countries not to come across the border illegally. Um, and also very harsh uh, new rules about who could claim asylum at the border and how they, uh, you know, tried to funnel people into using this app that people may have heard about called the CBP-1 app, um, also to apply from their home countries. Anyway, long story short, that worked in the short run. You saw a big drop in the number of migrants crossing in May and in June uh, to numbers that were basically the lowest of the Biden administration. I mean, you have to go all the way back to, to January of 21 to find numbers that low. But that didn't that has not lasted. That It does not seem like that dip was, was really durable. You still, single adults are crossing in lower numbers, but what you've seen in July and now especially in August 
is that migrant families are crossing in big numbers. And is how that, does that yeah, change the dynamic when are, when verse, individuals versus families crossing the border? Families are, uh, it's just much more difficult for the immigration authorities to process families because there are very strict rules that have been in place, uh, you know, really since the 90s about how long uh, migrant families can be held in detention, what kind of conditions they can be held under. The bottom line is that it, it's, you know, um, medical professionals, immigrant advocates have said that detention is very harmful for kids, mm -hmm. for children in general. And so that's why there are these strict rules in place. And the Border Patrol tries to, to release migrant families from, from their custody within 72 hours. Um, for a, a while, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, would detain migrant families in special facilities. But that has just not happened under the Biden administration. They have decided not to continue that practice. So what happens with, to a lot of migrant families is that they are released into yeah. the U.S. to pursue their asylum claims because it's just too complicated for the immigration authorities to detain them. Um, and that's not a secret. And yeah. I think, you know, so that there's sort of this uh, immigration restrictionists would, would allege there's sort of this perverse incentive for families to come with their kids on this dangerous journey through Central America because they know that that increases the chances that they'll get in to make an asylum claim. We are speaking with NPR's Joel Rose about immigration um, here on Studio Two. And Joel, I want to focus on New Jersey now. I don't even know how far down the road this was, but mm -hmm. the Atlantic City Airport was listed among many other sites as a potential place for migrants to be temporarily housed. I think this would mostly be migrants who are currently in New York City. And immediately there was stiff blowback here locally. Um, Marty Small, who is the Democratic mayor of Atlantic City, said he was livid and that people continuously dump their less fortunate on the great city of Atlantic City. That's a Democratic mayor. Uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, also a Democrat, said he could not see any scenario where we're going to be able to take in a program in Atlantic City or, frankly, anywhere else in the state. He said that to News 12. What do you take away from comments like that, Joel? Yeah, the political environment is um, clearly pretty hostile to the idea of taking in, in these migrants who are, uh, uh, you know, in New York in such big numbers. I mean, as you said, this was a proposal that, you know, first serviced in a report from Bloomberg that the Atlantic City Airport was on this list of 11 federally owned sites that, you know, maybe could be offered to New York City Mayor Eric Adams as, as an alternative housing sites. Uh, yeah. And the, the response was just fast and bipartisan and overwhelmingly negative. And I think it's, you know, tells you something about how concerned Democrats are, I think, about this as an election issue, right? That, that Governor Murphy, who has in the past been pretty pro-immigrant, who has, you know, famously pledged to make New Jersey a sanctuary state, who has, who has um, you know, signed legislation, I think, uh, to make college more affordable for, for uh, uh, immigrants, even if they're unauthorized immigrants. So, you know, he's ordinarily, under other circumstances, I should say, he has been very pro-immigrant. And in this issue, it doesn't seem like he entertained it for even a moment. He shot it down, this idea of it down very quickly. Um, and I, yeah, I think that tells you that Democrats are worried about the, the political resonance of this issue. And then what happens to the migrants? Let's say Democratic mayors and governors put up a big you know, proverbial stop sign or they, they sort of harden their cities or they, they, they give up their sanctuary city status, however it plays out. Then what happens to the people themselves, people who have endured great hardship already? Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think this whole situation really underscores for me 
how broken and dysfunctional our asylum system is in this country and how overwhelmed it is by the number of people who are seeking to use it. I mean, I, those, that was not a surprise to me, as, or probably to other people who follow immigration and, and our immigration laws closely, but these numbers really have, have just revealed how overwhelmed the system is. I mean, e- even if these people filed asylum, knew, you know, the problem is that it, it, you need a lawyer, really, yeah. to file an asylum claim and to have a meaningful shot at getting it. And, you know, there just isn't enough um, information, enough legal resources available for 100,000 people, uh, all at, you know, flooding New York City all at once to, to, to have meaningful access to this system. Um, and the system takes years. It takes years to spit out a decision. It takes six months just from the time you apply to get a work permit. And that's on paper. In reality, I think the the delays are possibly pushing it several months even beyond that. So, um, you know, and so you have all these people here who some of them probably do have decent asylum claims, especially if they're coming from authoritarian countries like Venezuela or Nicaragua. They have a real meaningful chance of success, but only if they have a lawyer and, and, you know, file in a timely way and, and, you know, so on and so forth. And and it's uh, there's just not really enough infrastructure there to make that happen. And so you have these people who want to work, who um, certainly could find work, if not in New York, then somewhere else in the country if they had a work permit. And they can't because they don't because you know, the, the whole system is um, is just out of their reach. Yeah, and I want to mention an email from Nick who says, we don't have an immigration policy. Why? And it seems like it's extremely complicated. And I want to piggyback on that, Can you, uh, because the money, the money is becoming a major issue. Um, who is paying for all this? Because uh, one of the major regions why New Jersey rejected this proposal is because of the money. They, they you know, the local authorities say they don't have the type of resources to pay for this, that the federal government isn't always reimbursing. Can you talk about the economics of this and the strain yeah. that it puts on systems? Yeah, the, the federal government has um, put up some money and, and has, a, you know, I, I believe through FEMA, there, there are some grants that, that cities, including New York, have gotten to reimburse themselves. But I don't think it's like it, it in no way is covering all the costs that, that are falling on, on the city and, and in New York and in other places that have taken in uh, lots of migrants. And, you know, I think maybe some of this is, is could be seen as negotiating in public, right, that, that New Jersey wants the feds to put up more money if they're going to send migrants to 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 New Jersey. I mean... That's kind of a cynical take, but maybe that's what's happening mm. to some extent. But yeah, the federal government is not footing the whole bill here, and the cities and states feel like it—they're um, not—they're not getting a fair shake. I know this is incredibly difficult to predict and project, but do you see this trend of migrants going to places like New York City, cities in the Northeast, perhaps the, perhaps the Upper Midwest? Do you see that trend continuing, Joel, or do you think at some point it boomerangs back? Um, I think, yeah, I, I think migrants will definitely continue to, to flow to where other migrants are. I think there's like a word of mouth system where migrants basically are following each other through pathways that have been successful, quote unquote, for, for those who've come before. I mean, I, I think at some point, maybe they, they will start to disperse not all to New York City when it becomes clear that that, you know, the conditions in the shelter are not great. And they're going to likely be then the cost of housing is extremely high. So they're going to be in the shelters long term. So, I, you know, I don't know. It, 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 it's it 
could uh, yeah. maybe the migrants will choose to disperse to, to sort of more economically advantageous parts of the country. But um, yeah, it's hard to say. And as we wrap up, got to ask 2024, how big are do you think this issue of immigration will be? And you have about 30 seconds. <laughs> well, Republicans in every cycle since I've been covering immigration have tried to make it a big electoral issue. I don't think there's a ton of evidence that it has succeeded for them, in, with the exception of 2016. Uh, that said, I mean, maybe things are different now because of the huge numbers and because of, you know, where the migrants are in, in Democratic-controlled states and cities. I, I'm going to hedge. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Thanks so much, Joel. That is Joel Rose, uh, NPR correspondent for the National Desk covering immigration. Joel, so great to have you with us on Studio Two. Happy to do it. Thanks. Coming up, more of us are using subtitles when we watch our favorite movie or TV show. We'll find out why. Coming up next. This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman. Errant subtitles have taken over television. We're not just talking about foreign language films or closed captioning for accessibility. This, I am told, is a cultural phenomenon. A significant increase in the last few years of people relying on subtitles for everything they watch. Reality shows, the latest movies, comedies on streaming services, hours and hours and hours of subtitles. Avi, do you use them? For the first time last night as I was watching a show, I used them because I am nothing if not a studious devotee of this show. And I did not like the experience, by the way. It was my first time doing it, and I thought it stunk. Well, I've been using it for a while just because I like foreign films, but also because some of the streaming services leave you no choice, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> a recent piece, though, by our next guest asked the question, why is everyone watching TV with subtitles on? And the answer, as with everything, it's complicated, y'all. <laughs> Joining us now is Devin Gordon, contributing writer, to the Atlantic. And before we talk to Devin, I want to invite you all, our listeners, friends, to weigh in on the topic. Are you into subtitles? Have you noticed a change in your viewing habits? You can call us at 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. Devin, let's start here. You, I guess like me, not a fan (laughs) of subtitles. Make your case. Yeah, and I should stipulate that I hate that this sort of makes me a default snob. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just I hate it. It just distracts me. Um, I feel like I can't focus on what's happening on the screen, which is the whole point of having a visual experience as well as an audio one. Um, and I'm often told by people who are subtitle aficionados or always honors, as I call them, that I should just get used to it. Don't worry, you'll get used to it. And I don't want to have to practice watching television. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm, pa- I'm past that point. I want to turn it on and have my experience. So that's that's where I am now. That's where I am now. But I'm softening ever so slightly. Before you go, before we dig deep into all the reasons why you don't like subtitles, let's talk about what you do get by using them. Right. Can yes. you lay that out for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, in the course of my reporting, and it wasn't just me ranting about about why I don't like them. <laughs> of course, I'm so curious to find out how it had happened that so many people almost imperceptibly started having them, not just turning them on, but leaving them on um, to the point where they always were on. 
And there were all kinds of reasons. I mean, the biggest one was simply that people couldn't hear the dialogue. And I got interested in the reasons why that might be. But there were many of them. I mean, even people were telling me they left the subtitles on because they had kids and it helped their kids learn how to speak English or learn, mm -hmm. learn the language. Speaking English was another thing. A lot of people who were maybe not English as their first language were, were, were using them um, to uh, understand English. But even that category, I mean, that didn't describe the friends of mine who were, were doing this. And, and it was just fascinating to me that it was there. And so they were using it all the time now. And it didn't bother them. It didn't seem to bother them at all. How much of that do you think is because people have been conditioned to watch on their phones, or their tablets or mm. devices that are not built, let's be frank, to project great audio? Do you think that's a big part of the shift, little part of the shift? Where do you put that? Yeah, I mean, I think if there's a pie chart, you know, it's a pie chart with a lot of slices, but that's one of the bigger ones for sure. I mean, whether it's TikTok or Instagram, we have been conditioned um, and I mean, we in terms of, you know, pretty much every generation by this point, except maybe the oldest, to have words on the screen and to have it not only not distract from the experience, but in some ways actively participate in it or contribute to it. You know, one thing that I did discover in the course of my reporting was that the biggest spike in recent years of of subtitle or closed caption usage has been among millennials. And I don't think that that's a huge shock. What's surprising, though, is that it's everyone, too. It's across the board. It's not just millennials, even if they led the way. Yeah. And I want to bring in someone who, like those millennials, likes to use subtitles. Might be a millennial himself. <laughs> Might be a millennial. Uh, Chris is on the line. Chris, welcome to Studio Two. What is your question or comment? Thank you. Uh, my comment is that when you watch shows like Squid Games, which were uh, very popular, when it is dubbed in English, it just how um, loses its authenticity. I like listening to it in the language it was filmed in. Um, it's just easier to follow along with the subtitles. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. A little bit of a crackly connection there, but Chris basically these said, audio issues we're having I know, in our subtitle I know, segment. I know, I know, which we kind of, <laughs> you know, if you could see us, we would need these subtitles. Um, just your comment on that, because I, I will say that I like some of these foreign films and I like Chris agree that, you know, having it dubbed, it just loses something and the subtitles uh, keep everything sort of intact. The, the 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 crack in the egg for me or the crack in the dam for me sorry uh was house of the dragon so speaking mm -hmm. of accents uh. missing things because you can't hear complex plots everybody has the same name that was the one where i gave in that was the show where i was like okay fine i'll turn on the subtitles in fact it got to the point where i didn't understand how they thought people were supposed to watch that show without subtitles like how are you following that thing um and so that was a show where it was so overwhelming for me that, that as much as I hate it, I turned them on. Um, and so if you sort of step back from that, there are probably lots of examples of places where and we're watching more international shows as well. So there are a lot more shows or movies that, that you know, are featuring people uh, with thick accents. I actually want to play a clip here. This is from the Game of Thrones prequel House of the Dragon. And uh, I guess you'll hear for yourself. Is mm -hmm. this hard to understand? Let's give it a whirl. If you ask me... Dad. You've heard the stories of Harrenhal, Your Grace. It's 
built in hubris by Aaron the Black as a monument to his own greatness. Blood mixed into the mortar. It is said to be a cursed place, that it passes judgment and all who pass beneath its gates. Yeah, all I got from that is that bad things are happening, I suppose. In a, uh, in a British accent, <laughs> so by Devin, the way. Devin, I actually want to talk about uh, Game of Thrones, including in addition to House of the Dragon, because I had a high school friend who, when I said we were going to do this show, said for her, Game of Thrones was the turning point when she started using subtitles. And you talked about that exact thing in your article for The Atlantic. Why was Game of Thrones a potential tipping point in this whole conversation? Well... Uh, it was a moment in home television uh, when the visuals had caught up to the blockbuster experience. You could do action sequences on Game of Thrones and often did that were the, at the level of what you would see in a movie theater. And so people were starting to expect that audio experience, even though they didn't necessarily have theatrical quality sound. So they turned it up and the audio would start to overwhelm the dialogue. You just couldn't hear anything. And there was also a technological change along along the way, which is that the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones sound better uh, than later seasons because of the way in which streaming companies and larger corporations that started to buy up all of these content companies uh, started missing mex- missing mixing messing with the you know traditional sound levels that were sort of an industry standard and that helped keep the dialogue audible. Yeah, and if you are just tuning in, we're talking about subtitles with Devin Gordon, a contributing writer to The Atlantic, who wrote a piece called Why Is Everyone Watching TV with the subtitles on? And we have some comments from our listener friends who's a comment from Shirley who says, in our household, people have various hearing needs and with subtitles, we can keep the volume comfortable for sensitive listeners and everyone can still follow the dialogue. We also have a comment from Georgette who says, I started using subtitles because my hearing is not as good as it used to be. And I found myself constantly rewinding. I want to piggyback on these comments because I have a subscription to Max mm-hmm. and I um, told Avi earlier when we were getting you back on the line that some of the sound there to me is criminal. Like I could barely, and I'm a Game of Thrones watcher, uh, love the show from the very beginning and House of the Dragon, but it was really hard to hear through the app, through streaming. Um, can you talk about what changed in the sound? Because when you had cable, it was clear. When you use streaming, it wasn't clear. I mean, there was for a very long time, you know, uh, basic cable, uh, network television, network television, a certain set of compression standards for the dialogues for just this reason, so that you could hear the dialogue over the din of the other sound. But when you had streamers and larger corporations buy up all this stuff, uh, especially the technology companies who think they know everything about sound themselves and apply a universal standard across everything, it ruins all those levels. And so everything gets muddled. And what happens is that the uh, they use a different focus point um, for general audio, and it ends up letting the dialogue get swamped by, you know, dragons flying overhead or whatever it is. I have a comment here from Maxine, who's got uh, the prescription here. <laughs> Maxine said, here's the problem with modern TV. Actors speak faster. Actors talk over other actors. Speakers do not always face the audience. Background music or sounds are too loud. You address some of that, Devin, but I think more broadly, has there been a change in the way 
actors communicate to the audience. And I wonder, in addition to that, if the way they're mic'd or the technology that allows them to be mic'd in different ways has maybe changed their acting style so that they're not communicating as clearly? You know, we're, we're getting into speculation and out of the realm of demonstrative science here, but I definitely <laughs> think that there's probably something to it. I mean, just the simple fact that there's a broader range of audio that you can capture uh, and put together in a television show or a movie. Um, we've got a lot more sound going on. Um, as the Game of Thrones woman said, the world is getting louder. Um, and I think that that's part of it. So I don't know if it's necessarily all the other sound masking the dialogue. Uh, but I also think that there's probably something to the fact that actors, um, maybe in the golden age of cinema and before this, um, were uh, stage trained, better at projecting their voice, things like that. Um, it's it's hard to know if that's uh, if uh, actors mumble today more. But I did hear that a, lot, a few people were like, you know, I just think actors mumble more now. Yeah, and and I wonder where do we go from here? Because to me, it, I think. It makes the case for going back to the movies for some of the bigger productions, yeah, yeah. Um, just so you don't need subtitles and you don't have this sound um, issue. Where, where do we go from here, um, uh, Devin? What's your argument about the future of subtitles? Is it just going to get worse? Well, I think that's an interesting notion that it makes the theatrical experience more special. I like that. And if it gets people going back to the movies, that's a nice thought. I mean, I think in terms of the, the home viewing experience, I think what we can hope for is that as people become increasingly reliant um, and used to uh, closed captions or subtitles, as long as that's becoming more of a default, then hopefully the creators will get opportunities to play with that and use that to their advantage the way, for instance, Stranger Things did at certain points. They knew a lot of people were going to be using the closed captions. And so they were very creative with how they would describe sound effects and the brackets and things like that. Well, let's hope that, you know, if there's another tool uh, that that's out there, creative people start to get to use it more creatively. Before I let you go, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna complain for a second. <laughs> my biggest my biggest sub- on, my Bobby. biggest subtitle problem is when you go to watch a sports game at the bar and they don't have the sound on because they're playing music in the bar and they keep the subtitles on and it covers up the score of the game. Yeah. I have no interest in what the announcers are saying, especially the subtitled version. Just say you agree with me, Devin, and we'll close this segment. Yeah, I agree. That's indefensible. <laughs> it's indefensible. That is Devin Gordon. <laughs> thank you, Devin, for being a good sport. Contributing writer to The Atlantic. Devin, thank you for being on Studio Two. Great. Thanks for having me. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is the engineer for today's show. Head to whyy.org slash Studio Two or download us wherever you get your podcasts from Studio Two at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman Eric. Can you hear me? And I'm Cherry Gregg. We appreciate you so much for listening and joining us today.